uh, truly becomes one of our founding fathers. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we look at Jacob's life, we um, realize that in his unique personality, uh, God had his hands full when he began to take on someone with a strong-willed personality to, to shape them and bring them to a place where he ultimately walks humbly before his God. Uh, Genesis chapter 34, and I'm going to uh, read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back and, and attempt to break it down. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hevite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamar, went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamar said to them, My son, Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us and give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will make you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and, get, and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because this sister, their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamar. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's household lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? 
So let us give our consent to them, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house, and they left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Father, forgive us as we attempt to pass judgment upon the character of individuals, and yet might we humbly recognize there are things that are right and there's things that are wrong. Forgive us for the times that we don't understand fully the complexity of these kind of decisions, but we trust that as we fix our eyes upon you, Lord, you would grant us wisdom, you would give us some insight, you would allow us to recognize how or what kind of part we play in the thought process of these sacred scriptures. Lord, we trust as we journey through life and you're always at work attempting to change us, we pray that we would be transformed into a kind of people that stand for something and not simply stand for everything, but rather we focus our lives upon the things that truly matter and have the wisdom to know the difference between that which is good, that which is better, and that which is best. In Jesus' name, we humbly come. Amen. Jacob has, at this time, 11 sons. Later on, he has the 12th son, not too long after this. And Jacob only has one daughter, and this is Dinah. And so shortly after uh, Jacob returns to the Canaan land after he had uh, gotten into the squabble with his brother and he uh, stole the birthright and then he stole the blessing through deception, Dinah went out as they returned in verse 1 to visit the women of the land. Notice in verse 1, as we read earlier, I'll read that again. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Then we get to verse 2, and we read how the ruler of this land sees Dinah, and he violates Dinah. It's very clear from the Bible that both here in this story and most every other story, that people who do not know God will live by standards and values and principles as if God will never know what they do. To be a godless person is to be a person without fear of judgment or consequences from God 
but rather simply fear the consequences or accusations that people might make against us. To be godless is definitely different than to choose to walk in a life that is godly. Their concern was not in being personally accountable to an invisible one who may or may not in their minds understand. They certainly lived a godlessness kind of lifestyle where a sense of right and wrong was always up for negotiation. We recognize that as we journey through life and we move into uh, New Year's every day as we uh, uh, are coming from a, a, a relatively post-Christian era, that more and more of these traits become clear that we are a people who seemingly, by vote, no longer want God to be the one who, who directs. And so we see that as Jacob and God's people are moving into a land that is godless, that there's going to be some differences of opinion, but not only a difference of opinion, a whole different reaction to once you break something, how do you fix it? Being a godless person is very different, especially uh, when these people live as if they can rule others by whatever rules they make for themselves. Godless people feel as if all the rules of life are established by some kind of vote, some kind of uh, personal opinion, some kind of bargain, some kind of negotiation, some kind of popular preference, or simply the abuse of the power that you and I can somewhat muster up. These people are a people of the land of Canaan, are a people who really do not believe in God, especially one who knows all the details of life and what is exactly going on behind the closed doors. Now, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob are a people who are, are, are ones have called out a people who truly know God because God reveals himself to his people. Now, uh, God's people are not uh, to be perceived as better than the rest of the world, but that's what often gets interpreted. But on the other hand, God's people are given a wisdom from God through his revelations that they would be wise if they use it. God's people have not always acted wisely, have not only taken time to look to God's wisdom and counsel. And so here we have a story of a godless people and a godly people who neither of them are looking to God's opinion in the matter. And so we have a complicated mess and a drama of its own kind that seems to be the overflow of what happens when two cultures, particularly godly people and ungodly, crash, and then the godly people make matters worse by taking it in their own hands. We're going to fix it. The underlying story of Jacob is, is a person who belongs to God and someone who possesses the blessing of God on his life. He holds the promises of God. He's even someone who's personally experienced God through wrestling with him all night long. He has seen God face to face, yet his personality as a grabber, his personality as a deceiver, a personality of one that is extremely strong-willed, he's making life extremely hard and difficult for even God to bring about his people under a purpose that is unique 
and precious to the world. In a similar way, many people, as we recognize who come to faith in Jesus Christ even today, struggle over the fact that God does not always protect us from evil. He does not always provide security for us, especially when we have a daughter who wanders off and checks out to get to meet the women of the land, and we wonder, how does this kind of stuff happen? We need to be careful about saying what we could do to protect bizarre situations like this when evil begins to intrude upon God's people But we need to attempt to humbly say, God, we not only need wisdom for ourselves, but we need to understand what wisdom is available to your people and how can we begin to humbly move into an attitude where we can be truly taught by God. The story is a clear reminder that God's people need wisdom all the time, every time, every day or we are going to look like a people who do not have the wisdom of God. We need God's voice, we need His direction, we need His blessing, we need His favor, or we're going to act just like the nations all around us. Especially when we live near or among people who do not possess God's wisdom or have any fear of God, if we're not careful, we will simply respond the same way they've dished it out. Godless people live by ungodly values. I don't think that's a shock or a surprise to us, but sometimes the shock or surprise is when we as the people of God get frustrated over the behaviors, the attitudes, the value systems of other people, yet fail to learn that godless people uh, will live as if God does not exist, but that does not give us an excuse to live as if God does not have a right way to live or a wrong way to live. Jacob had a personality which he trusted more in his own methods. We saw that through the life of Jacob up to this point. We understand his personality is bent, that his way of obtaining the favor and blessing of God was to steal it through deception. His, his, he had a, a mixture of not only God's direction in his life, But he had this tendency, like many of us, we've got to help God in the process. And sometimes if that becomes, or or we inherit that kind of personality or a strong-willed sense, or we have a desire to control things, uh, God has his hands full in trying to turn us in a way that we can let his blessing rest upon us without getting ourselves all messed up in the process. He trusted in God's protection and promises by applying God's wisdom that he provided. Yet it can be a hard life when we, like Jacob, know God personally, yet we struggle with listening to God, at least in that area of wisdom. We live in a generation today and we live among a people who live as if God certainly is not the one who tells us how to live Even among many of the people of God today, there's a tendency more and more to have begun to believe that the wisdom that God has given us in his word is no longer applicable to us in this world. When God's people accept the standards and values, the belief systems of a godless world, we greatly increase the risk that our daughters are going to pay a big price. 
And it's important to understand that when we look at the life of Jacob, we've come to the place not only where God is involved personally in his life to shape his life, but now he gets a beginning taste of what happens to the next generation if they don't get the picture. If somehow they don't understand the beauty of trusting God, there's going to be some big price tags to pay. And so we see Dinah paying a big price. We see Simeon and Levi beginning to develop their own forms of deception, their own forms of control. They go up living the same patterns that were set in the generation before. The cost will increase more and more, particularly in the lives of God's children when we fail to live by God's wisdom and standards in life. It's easier, it seems, as if you don't know God and get into trouble than if you do know God and we get ourselves in trouble. We dig a huge hole. What seems to take place, it's ironic that um, the concept that someone's daughter is defiled doesn't seem to bother Shechem and Haman. And that's one of the sad realities in a changing world is what seemed to, to really hurt this, this family of God. It somehow has become more of an accepted thing that this kind of stuff happens and no longer would anybody dare take a stand and fight against a people like that. We sort of believe that a godless world, we've got to be tolerant with crazy godlessness in our world. But we move on from there. Now, as, a, as we consider Jacob, we consider the transition in his life and study his personality, his deceptive nature, his manipulative tendencies, he is still God's man. And that's what we're attempting to hold on to, that God has, has worked his way into your life and mine, and you and I can pull off some pretty crazy, bizarre attitudes and behaviors, and God is going to take us through a process of, process of transformation. The question is, will it be smooth, or is it going to be rough? Sometimes the roughness of life, we might blame God for not doing his job. We might question, where's God love in a, in a world like this? You and I need to realize that there's a lot of, of sowing and reaping that takes place in life. And life is so much different, distinctively different for us when we come to God, that we follow his ways and we walk according to his principles that we could possibly protect our daughter's and our granddaughters in life. God is obviously leading and directing and moving in Jacob's life, and sometimes it really, really hurts. And yet, the transformation that takes place in his life, we trust ultimately, becomes something that comes, becomes sweeter in the final stages of life. So the story of Dinah wandering off among the ungodly women of the land and is defiled by an ungodly ruler of the land. And then Dinah's brothers, out of anger and rage over the way that their sister was treated, they end up using deception. They use violence themselves and destroy every male adult in the land of Shechem. There seems to be no rights, no wrong in this story. And it doesn't quite fit well because some of us would like to believe if you're God's people, you always get protected. And if you're not God's people, well, that's a different chapter. All this is often common, even among uh, God's people today. Uh, whenever we fail to apply God's wisdom, listen carefully to his voice and, and receive God's transforming power the way that God intended, 
then we are going to have an extra uh, amount of, of challenges that really don't have any simple explanation. They don't really have any nice way of responding to it. It just gets messy upon messy upon messy. Fortunately, God's in, in charge. He's sovereign. He is able to restore not only Dinah, he's able to restore Simeon, he's able to restore Levi, he's able to restore the dignity of Jacob, but the sad reality is Jacob not only has to deal with this loss with Dinah, but we're going to look in the next upcoming chapters of Joseph being sold by his brothers as a slave in Egypt. It's awful to think how the people of God can live a certain way, and yet it's not Jacob's fault that his kids turn out that way, but look at the drama of the wives he had, and look at the drama of, of his deceptive personality. We need to recognize that sometimes it's a harder life to follow God than it is if you just live like the heathens. Now, that certainly doesn't give us a reason to give up. It doesn't give us a reason to say it doesn't matter because we are told that one day when we see Jesus, it's going to be worth it all. And I trust you can just hold on to that thought because before we get there into experiencing real deep, lasting change in our lives, some of us who are strong-willed, a little bit deceptive and creative in life, we're going to be Oh, and through a harder life, it's so much easier to come to faith and let the wisdom of God, the truth of God change us from the inside out. We can spare ourselves of so much heartache. What we want to do is humbly consider, how does a man of God end up in such a jam? Genesis chapter 28. Let's go back a couple chapters in verses 10 through 12. We need to kind of replay the story because we're attempting to put together some pieces and yet humbly ask ourselves, is this seemingly what drives behind the story of, of what uh, enables or, or ultimately backfires upon Jacob in his life? Genesis chapter 28, we're going to look at verses uh, 10 through 12. Now, we need to realize that um, Jacob is, is on the run here. Genesis uh, chapter 28, verses 10 through 12. Jacob left Beersheba. He set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Drop down to verse 16 now through 22. When Jacob awoke from his dream, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head. He set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. 
In verse 20, then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tent. We find here that Jacob has been so moved by the presence and the appearance of God himself that God revealed to him through a unique encounter, this case a dream, that God is real and God is good. That in the reality of God and the goodness of God, Jacob just spontaneously responds, this is a God I want to serve. Many of us come to faith because we recognize that that twofold experience is God has shown us a little bit of his goodness or his power or blessing, and then he rewards us with some gift, some token, something to never forget that it is worth living for God. However that takes place in our lives, he wisely makes a covenant and says, God, I'm not moving. And this is the deal. He's on the run from his brother who wants to kill him. And he, as a deceiver, is running towards a whole new chapter of his life. But he says, when I get back here, the deal is I come back being blessed. I belong to you. Now, some of us might say, well, that's kind of a bargaining with God. Well, how do you think it looks when you're a purebred deceiver? you got to work your way to take everything from your brother, and now he's trying to negotiate with God. The beauty is that God can handle your personality, but when you give him your life, he's going to change you, and it might get rough. Sometimes we might say, well, then why make a deal with God? I'll leave that one in your hands. I know one thing. you got to deal with God whether we want to or not. The beauty is if we let God deal with us, in a way that seems to be uh, rooted and founded upon the Scripture, it really doesn't have to be as rough as Jacob had to go through. But these common experiences. Now, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 35 of Genesis. Notice in 28 where he had the vision. What was the name of the town? Bethel. Okay, it was called Luz, but he changed it to the name Bethel. And why did he change it to the name Bethel? It's because he met God there. He says, it's Bethel to me. And when I come back after going to Padan Aram, when I come back being blessed, and I know God blessed me, I'm coming back to my vow, my covenant, my pledge. Chapter 35 Then Jacob, then God said to Jacob in chapter 35, now this is right after the incident of the Dinah, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Well, the strange thing is that he's already been back at the promised land, but he hasn't gone back to Bethel. He came back to the promised land, and now we need to uh, consider as we look at uh, chapter 33 at the very end of it. Now, the end of chapter 33 stops where chapter 34 begins. I don't think that's hard us to figure out. 
What we're trying to understand is if N33 ends with a response Jacob makes and 35 begins after the ordeal with Dinah, you got to understand what is this parenthesis about? Chapter 33, we look at the end of Genesis. Verse 18, chapter 33. Now, after Jacob came from Padan Aram, that's from Laban, spent 20 years over there trying to work his way off to, to not only uh, get a wife and end up with two and a half wives or three wives or four wives, however you want to call it, with the concubines. He inherited a huge family drama over that. He arrives, notice it says, safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within the site of the city. Now, why in the world you pitch your tent next to a place like Sodom and Gomorrah, you and I have to figure out why Lot had the same problem and why we sometimes have the same problem. We pitch our tent, not at Bethel, but we like it in Shechem. Verse 19, for a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamar, this is where the trouble came, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Notice 20, and he set up an altar and called it El Eloah Israel. In other words, you and I need to understand that there's something about your spiritual makeup and the decisions you make and what you call sacred and how you live your life, that it's easy to find a place of comfort or complacency somewhere in the journey before you God wants us to be. He's supposed to have come back to the promised land and get himself to Bethel and to build an altar there and re-give himself to God. And he stops somewhere in the midst of it and says, you know what, I kind of like this land. It's nice, maybe the trees are big, maybe I got a nice view and I can have myself right here at a comfortable spot like Lot says, I'll pick the land over towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram says, you can have it. You learn later on that some places set us up for trouble. Even as God's people, though we are promised his blessing, we are assured of his favor, we need to be careful that we do not have our tent pitched in the wrong place and forget about the vow that we once made in devotion to God. And so the story unfolds that he's now pitched his tent outside of the city gates of Shechem, and then we get to chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. It's important to know when you raise kids, your faith really matters. When you begin to take a stand for the things of God, it may benefit me. I might be seemingly doing well spiritually, but there are decisions and choices that you and I have to consider all the time because if somehow we have the makeup and and background that is somewhat not careful about where you put your tent and where you establish your home and where you establish the place of worship, sooner or later you realize you could blame Dinah the daughter. Why would she do that kind of stuff? Or you and I can humbly say, you and I can set our children up for a certain disaster. You and I can make decisions in life. We can can live with consequences or the the, uh, complacency things of life, and it gets pretty expensive as it builds. The thing is that you and I need to realize when God first called Abraham, He chose Abraham for a very powerful reason, and it applies to Isaac, 
It applies to Jacob and applies to every one of us here today. Let's go back to Genesis 18. Genesis chapter 18, and this is actually when you find Abraham, he is pleading for God's mercy over Sodom and Gomorrah. He's pleading that somehow God would spare the peoples in this area. And we find in verse chapter 18, and we look at verse 18, well, we'll start with 17, where the angels of God, or, the, or in essence, the personality of, of Jesus in, in his foreordained position of e- eternity, we find him in verse 17. Now the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Notice in verse 19, for I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. The important lesson we need to recognize is God called his people to be a people that will take a stand and teach their children and set them in the right direction so that there will be a nation coming out of all of that where these people truly love and live for God. And so it's important as we uh, work through our lives and God is in the fine-tuning stages of us individually that whatever God does in my life certainly can be appreciated by me, but if I'm not careful what he tries to teach me, my kids are going to inherit the same garbage that God was trying to deal with in my life. It's humbling to try to understand that our daughters can pay the price. And somehow we could say that our kids, they got to make their own tough choices in life. They've got to formulate their own values, their own principles, their own standards. God is is desiring to raise up a people who their security is in the truth as God has revealed. And to work together and to support one another and to recognize that these are the standards in Israel. Nobody messes with my sister. That's a powerful statement. In some sense, we could say, well, how do we know that's the right answer? Well, as you read the rest of the history of Israel, you understand what the wars, the battles are all about, that sometimes in our Christian minds, we don't understand how could God have allowed this to take place? You and I need to realize we are called to rule this world under God's principles and standards. And sometimes the conflict, though it it is confusing to us, we need to understand that it's about the next generation. It's about our daughters. It's about our grandchildren. It's about the future of God's people. And I trust by His grace we realize that as God shaped Jacob's life and broke him down into becoming a pliable person such as clay upon the potter's wheel, you and I might recognize that we're all part of this transforming work of God. God's intent is, as Mark pointed out so well, a man who would stand in the gap. The sad reality is Shechem and Levi did not take it to God to get his advice. They simply took matters in their own hands. And so it's difficult to fully analyze and put the pieces together. But you've got to understand something about Levi. 
He's the father of the priesthood to handle holy things. And so we need to be careful in how we observe and analyze these things. The important thing is Jacob in all of chapter 34 is don't say anything. Don't do anything. He's become a man who once controlled, and now he's trying to keep everything under control, not because he believes that's the will of God. He's simply afraid that he is going to lose his life, possibly at the expense of his daughter being taken. And his sons say, this is wrong. The sad thing is the only way they knew how to solve the issue is to do what they always saw his father and mother do, is deceive and deceive and deceive. It's a complicated story. It's a mess. But I trust that you and I would realize the only hope for any of us to get through chapter 34 or the details that apply to us personally in our families is to jump over to chapter 35 where this is where we hear about God again and what he's doing in Jacob's life. And this is the goal we have to pursue. We've got to move past the complicated chapters of our life. We've got to move past the things that don't always fit together. They don't make sense. God wants to get us to chapter 35 because that's where transformation really takes place. Chapter 35, verse 1, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God. Notice what he says, Who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. It's a phrase that's used a couple times in this chapter. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods that you have with you. Purify yourselves, change your clothes, then come, let's go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. He's coming to a census now. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and their rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. The rings in the ears had something to do with foreign gods. That's important to note. In verse 5, then they set out and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself, notice again, when he was fleeing from his brother. We'll just simply stop right there for the sake of time. It's important to know that transformation, as much as God takes us through experiences that are difficult to process and sometimes humbly give us a real jolt in life because we realize that maybe we've been a little bit strong-willed, we've been stubborn in our ways, we're not quite ready to accept the Word of God as the Word of God, and sometimes life gets extremely challenging when we try to take matters in our own hands and still desire to be God's people. As we want to be God's people, the, the road is different, it's unique, it's uh, often uh, troubling, um, and it might be tempting to simply bail out and quit, but we won't really get to the promised land and experience its full blessing, especially the big price tag is we're going to lose our children. 
And so here we are as we journey on following Jacob. The ultimate desire God has is to establish a people who are set apart so that we can be recipients and channels of the blessing in favor of God. And that was God's plan all through history, is to bring about a people set apart in holiness and devotion to God, that we uphold the name of God with honor and dignity. And as God begins to work through Jacob's life, he ultimately comes to the place in chapter 35 where he lays it all down. All the family altars, the foreign gods, all the things that represented a man-made religion, they're buried. And he himself is free. And yet he still has to reap some of the consequences within his own children because of the decisions and the stubbornness of his will or whatever it is that unfold to the rest of the story. The beauty is that just because we become recipients of someone else's decisions before us doesn't mean that God is against us. It doesn't mean that God is uh, mad at us. It simply means that he loves us enough to confront us. He loves us enough to take us through hard times so that we can become a kind of people that ultimately the generations after us will know God is to be honored and adored. God is to be feared and his name is to be lifted high. That there's a right way to live and it's greatly rewarding when we bring ourselves to trust him and commit ourselves to his ways. Father, Help us as we journey on through life to realize that some things, though we are quickly forgiven, the consequences don't immediately disappear. We pray that we might recognize the beauty as you shape us and transform us, that your intent is to not only bring our hearts back to the place of our first love, but it's also to, to enable us to recognize that where we pitch our tent really matters. We pray that we would uh, establish ourselves in a place that we know your presence remains and our testimony can go forth. Father, thank you for these examples. May we learn, may we be humbly changed through some of the mistakes that others have made so that we don't have to repeat them ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, for the times in life that we believe we understand too many things about life. We pray that you'd Deal with us individually in a way that we recognize the connection between the way we live and the next generation that follows. We give ourselves to you. May you be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.